I'm Harry Glurkian, and this is Moneyball Medicine, the interview podcast where we meet researchers, entrepreneurs, and physicians who are using the power of data to improve patient health and make healthcare delivery more efficient. You can think of each episode as a new chapter in the never-ending audio version of my 2017 book, Moneyball Medicine, Thriving in the New Data-Driven Healthcare Market. If you like the show, please do us a favor and leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. We're all told regularly, think outside the box and look for the white space. That's exactly what my next guest actually did after spending over a decade in the academic arena of biophysics and machine learning. Dr. Charles Fisher looked around and realized that while the big names in tech were busy building machine learning capabilities for financial services, consumer goods, retail, and other areas, none of these were actually relevant for biological work, in particular clinical trials. So was born the concept behind unlearn.ai. By innovating an entirely new approach, this three and a half year old startup is committed to applying machine learning to increase the certainty of clinical trials by significantly shortening the time it takes to achieve outcomes and to validate them, relying on fewer participants. What's their trick? The use of digital twins. Dr. Charles Fisher holds a BA in biophysics from University of Michigan and a PhD in biophysics from Harvard University. He completed postdoctoral work at both Boston University and École Normale Supérieure in Paris, France. On the commercial side of things, Charles served as a machine learning engineer at Leap Motion and a computational biologist at Pfizer. Charles, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, uh, you know, great to talk to you at the AI Bio Biopharma conference and, you know, learning more about the more uh, more about the company, but yeah, I, I want to step back for all the people that are listening to this podcast and don't know much about your company. And how would you describe it sort of in the, in the simplest way possible so that to give the broadest understanding of it? Uh, sure. So I, I think the simplest thing to do is to start off by focusing on the value proposition. Right. Okay. And so if you think about the way we develop new medicines today, we have to test them in uh, clinical trials to make sure that they're safe and effective. Those clinical trials can take an extremely long time and they cost a lot of money. And so we are developing technologies that will help biopharma companies run those clinical trials twice as fast using half as many people. And the way that we do that, so every single clinical trial is a comparison. We want to compare what would happen to a person? How would they respond if they receive a new kind of treatment? To how would they respond if they didn't, if they did not get that treatment? And that difference between would they get better if they got the treatment and would they not get better if they didn't tells us if that treatment's effective. Um, and there's something uh, in the business that we call the fundamental problem of causal inference. And the problem is that you can never do both of those things. You can give the patient the drug or you cannot give the patient the drug. You can't simultaneously do both. So right. you can only observe one of the outcomes, what happens if they get the drug or what happens if they don't, but never both. So what we do as a company is that we collect uh, lots of historical patient data 
And then we use artificial intelligence technologies to try to simulate how a patient would respond if they did not receive a new therapy. So if they were to just be put on the current standard therapy. And then we can use that information as a comparison to a real patient who gets a drug in a clinical trial to tell whether or not that drug is really effective for that patient. How did this epiphany sort of, how did you come to this? Like, I, I, I mean, I know some of your background isn't necessarily, didn't start in healthcare, if I, if I read your bio correctly. Uh, my background is, so the path to starting Unlearn, which now was about three and a half years ago, uh, is relatively long and <laughs> winding. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not a person who set out to become an entrepreneur. That was never my goal. Um, I'm a scientist. And I went to uh, undergraduate University of Michigan. I studied biophysics. Um, and then I did my PhD in biophysics at Harvard. And I had every intention of being an academic. <laughs> I, uh, I did a postdoc at Boston University where I worked again on, on biophysics. Then I did a second postdoc. That's how you know I wanted to be an academic is the second <laughs> postdoc uh, in, uh, in France. So I moved to Paris and did a postdoc there. Um, uh, so again, biophysics, right? And so all of that, it really all the way back to my undergraduate Michigan, PhD and my multiple postdocs, all of that work was on applications of machine learning to different problems in biology. And that means many different problems. So my uh, sort of undergrad and PhD work was about understanding how sm very, very small molecules, so well, not small molecules, but small things that we are way too small, like proteins and nucleic acids for us to actually take pictures of. We wanted to understand how they move. Right? So these are actually flexible dynamic engines that they, they actually have to move around and we don't really understand how that works. So I was trying to use machine learning to understand that. And okay. then my postdocs were looking at trying to use machine learning to understand the microbiome. Mm -hmm. So all the bacteria that live mostly in a, in a person's gut. And then after my, that, I eventually decided that I, Actually, it was more like I didn't know what happened in industry. That was, it was, wasn't so much like I decided to go into industry. It was more like, oh, I've spent, you know, the last decade in academia and I actually have no idea what happens in industry. Like, is that a, is, you know, so I decided to go find out uh, and move to Pfizer. So then I worked at Pfizer uh, as a machine learning scientist doing a lot of work looking for biomarkers and things in, in mm -hmm. clinical trials, a lot of work uh, in phase two trials looking for biomarkers. And then I took a complete left turn, just total left turn, because it was biology, <laughs> biology, biology, biology. I moved out to San Francisco and uh, started working at a virtual reality startup. Yeah, it was Magic Leap, right? It's, well, it's called Leap Motion. A lot of Leap people Motion, sorry. mix them up because they're both virtual reality startups and they both okay. have Leap in the name. Um, but yeah, so what Leap Motion was trying to do was instead of needing a controller to interact with virtual objects, it was- It was you your hand, right? Above a, a sensor system. Right, so in the end, the idea was that they actually shipped it long before I worked there in like keyboards for computers, but for virtual reality, it would basically be mount, head mounted sensor system so that like you could reach out and grab virtual objects. Anyway, I only worked there for a few months. I didn't end up. Uh, I didn't end up uh, 
enjoying it. Uh, it, it just wasn't for me. I'm, I'm not interested in virtual reality. I don't, I don't play games, you know, like video games or anything like that. And I spent my whole career in, in bi my whole career had been in biology. And, uh, that, so, but I met my co-founders at that company. Um, so myself and my co-founders, uh, John Walsh and Aaron Smith, we were all machine learning scientists, all working at Leap Motion. We all left the company around the same time. And so then we got into this idea of um, deciding to start Unlearn. And the original thought around it was that pretty much all machine learning research in the entire world was being driven by like five or six companies. Right. Google, Facebook, and, you know, mm -hmm. and the like. And, you know, they have a particular agenda, right? They are working on problems that are relevant for their businesses. That's, that makes sense, right? Yes. Uh, but the problems that are relevant for their businesses aren't the same problems that are relevant for medicine. It's a completely right. different kind of data, completely different kind of problem. So uh, medicine has been really underserved when it comes to a lot of machine learning research. There just hasn't really been much, actually. Especially, I mean, if you look at it, sometimes people feel like there is, but dollar for dollar, it's not a comparison. You know, maybe 1% of the total research expenditures in machine learning has been spent on medical problems, if that. Right, right. So our, our, you know, our idea was basically, well, let's just start over, right? Let's get, let's look at the kind of data and the kind of problems we really have in medicine, and then invent machine learning methods to solve them. Um, and yeah, that that's where we started, you know, three and a half years ago. So, but but in reality, we are sort of utilizing tools that are produced by, you know, the Fang, right? Right? Facebook, Apple, and all these guys are. We use a completely custom software stack. And we use uh, machine learning methods that are new and that we've invented and that we have the patent applications on. So yeah, most companies are using, most companies are not actually inventing anything. They're just using things invented by others, software yes. written by others, and then repackaging it. But that's not us, no. The whole fundamental thought of our company is that that won't work, is that those things were designed for other problems and that we really needed to focus, especially for looking at clinical data, on creating new technologies designed for that problem. So everything that we've built, we've done, is completely custom built. First year and a half of the existence of the company, we just you know, turned on the fluorescent lights and went into a tiny little office and just wrote <laughs> code, right? Like we didn't, that, so the first year and a half was just building technology more than anything else. And so to do what you wanna do requires a significant level of data coming in, right? To, to, to build what you're calling, say, a digital twin of a, of a person. How have you been testing out your system, getting real-world data to then optimize it, to, to build something that you believe is representative? Mm -hmm. I think that people actually often, because again, because of the research coming out of Google and these other companies, overestimate how much data you need to solve these problems. Um, we do need a, more data than you get like out of one clinical trial, right? But you see stuff coming out of um, uh, like GPT-3, this language model that oh, I think OpenAI yes. put out, right? I forget how many millions of dollars it costs just to train the model. Like the $12 million in three runs, right? Cause, and that was just the electricity cost, if I remember correctly. Yeah, 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 right? So, you know, that's, that's, that's one. That, there are problems like that, right? But in healthcare, again, it's just very different. The kinds of data that we have, the problems we have are so different from what you see in other machine learning areas. The problems we have are that the data sets, individual data sets are small. 
That's, that's the truth. Individual data sets are small. There's an enormous amount of missing data, right? Yes. No one has, right? And then there's a lot of heterogeneity that in some cases isn't, isn't real heterogeneity, right? So because the data set is small, we will aggregate many data sets. Right? Right. But then we see a difference between two, two data sets. What is that? Is that because of how the data were collected or is that really reflecting underlying biology? We don't yes. Know. Yeah. So, we, so there are all these problems that are just different from Facebook downloading everybody's face. Right. <laughs> right? right. So it's right. totally different. So, you know, that's why I say we start with we, we've really gone a very different direction in our methods because we're focused on the problems we encounter working with clinical data. Right. So when we think about collecting data, when we think about collecting data, we're primarily focused on data quality. And, right. and data quantity is the second thing that we think about, right? Um, and to focus on data quality, we wanna have rich data sets where you have a, quite a bit of information about one particular patient. We'd like that information to be longitudinal, so where we can say, how is this person progressing in terms of their disease? Um, and then, you know, we'd like it to be um, relative, as standardized as we can get. And then we worry about data set size. So, you know, our, building our data sets, we've focused not actually on what people call real world data, data coming out of uh, routine care. Data coming out of the EHR is terrible. <laughs> it's, right. it's terrible data. It's definitely not rich, right? And I like to give the example, you know, we start primarily, our foundation is data from clinical trials because it's very standardized, it's extremely rich. So like in Alzheimer's disease, we have data sets where a patient will go in, they'll take a whole battery of like five or six different cognitive tests. They'll get an MRI, they'll get a PET image, they'll get all this blood test, right. and then they do that every three months for two years, <laughs> right? Right, right? And that just doesn't happen in clinical practice, right? Like right. That, no one does that and just go to their doctor. So if you wanna get rich data sets, high quality data sets, clinical trial data is the place that we kind of have to start. And then the problem we encounter is kind of I alluded to earlier is that a individual clinical trial tends to have like two or 300 people in it. Right. And now that is too small to do machine learning on. So now we have to try to integrate data from lots and lots of different clinical trials, um, which is a lot of work. Um, but that's that's one of the things that we've focused a lot of our, our time and effort on. And so you get this information from these clinical trials. You aggregate to a certain number that makes sense for your system to then ingest, right? And then what comes out? Right. Um, I, I have this incredible, you know, fantasies about what is a digital twin, right? To a certain degree, right? Um, I think I go way too Star Trek-ish or, or Star Wars-ish when I think about that. But how do you describe it to someone when you're describing, yeah, we have a digital twin on someone? And, and I think that it's almost impossible for people to really, for, to really describe it well. The best thing that I like to do is when I'm giving like a presentation with slides, is to just show an example, right? So, so if I show an example, people can really get kind of what it is, right? I think people tend to go like one way or another on. Some people think that like a digital twin is gonna be like a molecular simulation of a person, right? Like extreme detail. <laughs> and like that's, that's clearly like just so far outside the realm of technological possibility today, right? <laughs> Um, and then other people look at like 
what's happening in the real world data space where people do these matching techniques where you mm -hmm. like you literally basically like if you were in a clinical trial I would just try to find a similar person in the in who it, where I have data on and I'd be like that's they're similar enough they count as a control um, and what we do is just so different from both of those extremes so what what we create are medical records so you could imagine that a, a patient in a clinical trial will have a, a whole set of medical records that are collected for that patient and they're in a particular format so whenever you want to submit data to like fda as part of a clinical trial they require you to use or strong i'm not just require or strongly encourage but either way there's a particular data standard that people use um, and that that would have a patient in all of these different measurements that were made on that patient in the clinical trial um, and so we were we simulate patient data and our goal was to make it as seamless as possible for our customers and what that the most seamless thing is if our simulated data look exactly like the real data that you would collect on a patient in the clinical trial. Yep. So that's our goal. We use the formats called like CDISC is this data standard and we create medical records, simulated medical records in that same exact data standard. So what you'll get out of this is you'll have two matched medical records. You'll have a, some medical records that you collected from a real patient when they received mm -hmm. the drug. And then you'll have another set of medical records which look basically exactly the same format, same everything else, but that are predict how that patient would have responded if they had received the placebo instead of the treatment. And, and have you put that into general practice yet? Or where's the company at the stage of, of development? I don't know what gen, general practice is. We, we, um, so we, we are still, I would consider ourselves an early stage company, right? Being around three and a half years, uh, you know, we have about 20 people, um, although we are growing, we're, we're hiring uh, people all the time. Um, so in terms of product development and deployment, um, we have, we kind of go through a general progression of the, like for all of our products, we kind of think about where we start off, we do research, we publish a scientific paper, so, right? So that's, that's so we had a paper come out a little over a year ago, uh, describing some of this work in Alzheimer's disease. And then once we have that paper, we went to uh, go talk to the FDA about the work that we were doing in Alzheimer's. So that was step two. So first step, paper, second step, FDA. Um, and then the third step is to start working, uh, yeah, with customers who are running, either who have previously completed clinical trials in the space, where we can then reanalyze those trials as a part of validation, and to start working with customers who are running prospective trials. So we, um, we are currently working on a single phase three uh, clinical trial for a company developing a medical device aimed at the treatment of Alzheimer's. Um, and that, that's ongoing now. Um, and then we are working with a couple of different companies uh, and a number of some academic groups uh, doing these retrospective analyses to present validation studies. Uh, looking at completed clinical trials and we're actually so there's a in about a month from now first week of november there's a, a big clin uh, conference in alzheimer's disease called the clinical trials in alzheimer's disease so it's it's very straightforward <laughs> yes uh, so, and uh, so we're, we'll be presenting a number of results at that conference from uh, what some of these collab academic collaborations so 
let me see if I've got the validation correct. The validation is you, you, the way that you validate your product is going and getting a trial and seeing if you come out with the same answers. Not necessarily um, actually the same answer. Um, so this is a tricky one. People off, this is, this one is a, this is a, a tricky concept, right? So a clinical trial is random, right? A single clinical trial produces a random result. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, so the p-value, the thing that people talk about, that's a random number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've had a whole podcast on p-value, yeah. <laughs> you know, so like one way that you could, you could get type one error rate control, which is why people do this, this the way they do it, is if you just, whatever it is you are doing, any sort of experiment, you're running clinical trials. At the end of your clinical trial, you don't even look at your patient data. You take two dice and you roll the dice. And, <laughs> and if, you, if you roll a, you know, a, a 12, then you approve the drug, right? That would achieve... Uh, uh, the same level of type one error rate control that you have out of the way we currently do it. It would have Wonderful. zero power. The power would be terrible, <laughs> but, 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 but that would achieve. So, um, I don't remember where I got, I got into a critique of p-values, uh, which is a concept I love to critique uh, there for a second. But could you remind me of the question? I'm sorry, I sidetracked. <laughs> it it's okay, because I had an entire conversation. I had two podcasts talking about how crappy p-value is and and how we need to move beyond it. But what I was saying is you validate your product against, um, or your process or product against a real trial and see how you come out against it. Yeah, so we, we basically do three types of validation studies. So the first one is actually patient level because, because we, we make simulations of individual patients. Right. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that we'll do is we'll take some patient who received a placebo in a clinical trial and we'll just compare them individually to their simulation and yep. say, you know, did we do well on these patients? Right. And then you can take a step up from that and say, okay, well now let's look at like a cohort level, right? Let's look at a clinical trial, look at the control arm of that clinical trial and ask whether or not we could have predicted the behavior of that entire control arm. Right. So that's, that's a sort of higher level. And then the third level is to reanalyze a previously completed trial and to try to demonstrate that we can get much, much better results. So it's not about, it's not about necessarily saying you would get the same result of the trial. It's actually trying to demonstrate, actually very clearly demonstrating that we can get much better results. And what does a much better result mean? Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you take a drug that wasn't approved and you get it approved because maybe the drug doesn't work, right? You don't, you don't right, want right, to get, right? right? So that's not necessarily better. What we're talking about there is, is kind of two, it's really about the statistical properties, the uncertainty that you have in whether or not the drug works. We want to be able to show, and we can show actually really, really quantitatively that you can get much smaller uncertainties so you can, you can be much more confident in the result of a clinical trial um, using a much smaller patient population if you, if you leverage this approach. So, um, so that's, that's ultimately what, what we do when we do these reanalyses is to demonstrate those characteristics, better statistical properties using a smaller patient population. And so how are customers, let's say, or people in the field responding to this rather than the tried and true way? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the value proposition, I think, is, a, is enormous. Everyone 
appreciates the value proposition, right? So if you're in Alzheimer's disease today, you're gonna run a five-year clinical trial and you're gonna spend $200 million, right? Uh, it, you know, the idea that you could run that in half the time with significantly less expense, that's huge. And it's not just huge for the customers. You think about that downstream for patients, that makes a really big deal for patients, not only who are participating in these studies, but also all the patients who are waiting for new therapies that can, that can help them get better, right? right. Um, so, so everyone gets the value proposition. And the thing that, 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 that we have a challenge with, I would say as a, as a company, is just that we've invented a new technology that didn't exist before. And this enables you to do something that people had never even really thought about, never even considered, right? And so there's, a, there's really an educational campaign that we have to do to present data and to demonstrate to people with data that the approach that we're taking is sound and that it provides the value we say it does. I think that there's a really good benefit to us. You know, a lot of times I have the similar discussion about people with the FDA. They ask, well, how does the FDA feel about these things? And, and um, you know, our experience dealing with the FDA has actually been very positive. Um, they are quite supportive of innovation. They're quite supportive of technologies and new approaches. They just want you to present data, <laughs> but to demonstrate right. that what you're doing is actually reasonable and that it will work well. And I think that's how it should be, right? So we're, we're, we're kind of at this inflection point. Uh, we think we're at this inflection point now where at the end of this year, we're gonna be putting out five or six different validation studies. Um, that'll all be these uh, analyses. We will be, uh, so the trial that we are working in this phase three trial, that's actually reading out at the end of this year. So we'll be uh, producing results for that trial. So we're gonna have sort of a huge dump of evidence at the beginning, end of 2020, beginning of 2021. An enormous creation of evidence to validate that our approach works, not because we say it does, but here's the data that demonstrates it. So you're actually doing the two jobs you always wanted. Well, you're learning the new one, but you are an academic, right? Because you have to be doing at this level of research to a certain degree, but you're putting it into a more of a commercial product. So you might be getting the best of both worlds. Yes, I do a lot of, uh, uh, I, I, I actually personally don't do that much scientific research anymore. Ah. When we started the company three years ago, I wrote code and I did things like that. Now I, I do, you know, uh, other things. <laughs> raising money, I'm sure, is like front and center. Um, yeah, raising money, giving talks, uh, management, right? As you start to get uh, your company grows, there's a lot of yeah. things about it. So there's a lot of other things to do. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that is really a big difference between what we do and academia. And it's really a big cultural difference. Um, and I hope none of the academics who are gonna listen to this <laughs> yeah. upset at it. Yeah, but there was a reason I left academia, right? And to an extent it was that I didn't feel like I could really have a significant impact. An enormous amount of what happens in academia is competition. People think right. about business as being competitive, but it's actually way more collaborative than academia, right? Academia, you're in business for yourself and everyone else is a competitor. Everyone else in the world is a competitor. Yep. Um, and the result is that, you know, what you basically do is write a paper and then you go talk about it, you yell at and everyone yells at you about your paper's bad and you yell at them and you, not a whole lot gets done. And then you move to the <laughs> 
and you move into industry, and we have, uh, you know, not only is there within the company, we have a whole team of people who are dedicated to a problem, right? But you actually have a whole ecosystem of other companies who want you to succeed, right? Um, every single pharmaceutical company that we talk to wants us to succeed, right? Because if we succeed, they succeed. Right. So you right. end up having really a huge network of people collaborating kind of all towards the same goal in a way that I think you don't see so much in, in academia. And then what that enables us to do is to really marshal a lot of resources towards things that you don't, no one in academia really works on. Right. And one of the biggest things, honestly, for that is just software engineering, right? An enormous amount of what we do is software engineering and writing documentation for software and oh. testing the software and making sure that the and software- And auditing it and yes. I, and, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and all of that, right? That's something that in academia, you you typically just, just don't see. No, 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 no. You need to audit it and then, you know, you'd love to get certified that your audit is done proper. I mean, I, I know, I know, I, I have to deal with this with some of our companies all the time. So correct me if I'm wrong, but Alzheimer's is like the place you guys have stuck a stake in the ground. At least it sounds like you've got the most there. Yeah, that's our first indication that we're really going after. And so if you played this out into the future, where do you see this expanding into? Is it just expanding into other disease states or is it utilizing this for other application areas? Depends on the time scale. Um, in the short term, uh, you know, the next few years, we're talking about expanding this into new disease areas. Um, there's no reason the way that we work, it's one of the advantages of using artificial intelligence for these problems is that yep. they're data driven. So that enables us to say, okay, well, let's, let's look at immunology problems. Let's look at oncology problems. Let's look at all these other areas, uh, cardiology. We, we can do that because it's data driven. Um, and so that's the first thing. I think that if we look farther into, into the future, then we get into what we call comparative effectiveness. So when you run a clinical trial for regulatory purposes, you're basically just trying to demonstrate that in a really, really homogeneous patient population, there is some patient population where the drug works better than nothing or better than what's currently available or what's, stand, what's typically used, I should say. Um, and so, so that's what's used for regulatory approval. It can work in this, in this population. But when you actually start thinking about down the line, what prescription should be given to this patient and how much should their insurance company pay for it? A lot of that starts to then ask, well, okay, if there's 10 therapies available, which one of them is really gonna be best for this patient? And how can you understand that comparative effectiveness? And how is that gonna to relate to enabling that patient to go back to functioning in their daily life? So maybe someone sick and they can't go to work, right? If they are able to get better, they go back to work. And that's, so there's this economic aspect that gets that's to it. And what we'd like, well, the, I mean, as a society, what would be helpful is to have clinical trials that do head-to-head -head comparisons of all of these different medicines. That's not done, right? Uh, there's a variety of reasons why it's not really done, uh, but yep. it's not done. 
Um, and those are things that we can actually start to think about how you could just run those head-to-head -head comparisons in a computer, right? Remember, these are for drugs that are already marketed where you're get, there is a lot of data from patients yes. taking the drugs. And so can we just take all those data and figure out how to run a computer simulated clinical trial? Yes, yeah, something I've thought a lot about as a, you know, it, I haven't you know necessarily always thought about that from a clinical trial perspective, but how do you have enough data on a patient that you can just by the data say and and all the data behind it how someone's going to react to a certain therapeutic or not. Exactly, yeah. And then the, both of those first two applications I gave you, and I'll, I'll get to, back to what you actually were just saying there in a second, but just to draw a contrast, clinical trials and and in this market access uh, comparative effectiveness stuff, even though we're making predictions and things at the individual patient level, the policy in both of those things is population level, right? The policy for a drug approval is that the drug is approved, right? The policy yes. for the insurance company is that they'll reimburse this much for the drug, right? Um, and so those are both interesting, but they're not, they're not really personalized, right? And so that last thing that I think really in the future is exactly what you're alluding to, which is how do you use these types of technologies for personalized medicine to really think about getting the right drug to a particular patient for their circumstances, right? That's gonna give them the best chance of getting better. Um, and uh, that is something in the future that we, we think about. It's interesting because there's a lot of different companies coming at that particular issue and from different angles, right? Um, but all of them involve data. Yeah, for us, I think that, that's, that that is a future. Like, like I think that it can get there. I feel like we're building a technological foundation with the kinds of machine learning we use for that. Um, but it's a, you know, it's it's a less mature idea, and it's a less mature market than the things than these these population level concepts, right? Who pays for it? There's all kinds of questions about business models and other things. Once you get there, and so I feel like that's a 15 year away problem. In uh, in that, I hope uh, not. I'm getting older. <laughs> And you know, but that, but that the clinical trials and the market access things that those are problems that we can solve today with really no new technologies necessary. With the technology we have right now, we can solve those problems, and the business models we have right now, we can solve those problems. Um, so that's kind of our initial focus. You know, I, I guess you know, not not today, but one of these days, I'd love to. If there's a demo to see, I'd love to see in, see it in action. Um, I'm always looking at what's, <laughs> what's that? Yeah, well, like our demo is just the medical record, right? Like that is our demo. Maybe a slide deck then. <laughs> yeah, we create simulated medical records. So people say they want to say, it's like, okay, well, here's here's a medical record, uh, which which is what we do actually. I mean, like when we're working with a lot of pharmaceutical companies, that's actually step one, right? A big part of step one is they'll be like, can we see it? And we'll say, sure. Let's let's get a collaboration going. You'll send us uh, baseline data from patients in one of your trials, and we'll create these simulated medical records, and then you can dig through them, right? Like that's one of the easiest way for people to really understand, like what our product is. Well, it sounds exciting and fun. Love to learn more about the technology, but you know I, that that'll happen over time, um, especially how you're coming at it by writing your own software and creating your own tools. That that's to me is the most interesting part of it because i i do believe what you said in the beginning which is we take everybody else's tools and superimpose them on our world and that can only get you so far um, absolutely yeah for us 
one of the reasons we wanted to go this direction was to solve these important problems in medicine. That was one of the reasons, right? One of the other reasons, though, is that, you know, me and John and Aaron, we're at our core, we're machine learning researchers, right? Like we are interested not only in solving problems in medicine, but in pushing machine learning forward and getting to that next generation of AI. And I think that part of what the way that you do that is you, is you look into new kinds of problems that haven't, haven't been attacked with machine learning before, right? Right. Because if you actually look at what happened with, you know, convolutional neural networks, that's driven by a particular insight about images. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being a huge innovation. And it was driven by the data they started with. It's actually an interesting point. Because they started with images as data, they invented this architecture that works right. really amazing for images. And then you can expand on that. And they learned a lot more about how that can be used for uh, molecules and other kinds, of, uh, other kinds of ideas now. And I think the same thing is going to be true for if people that start looking at these new kinds of data that are underserved. If you, instead of thinking about how can I make this a convolutional neural network, which doesn't necessarily make, if you think about it from the start, you can discover new principles of machine learning because you're looking in a part uh, area that's uncharted. And Correct. for us, that was another part of what was really exciting about getting into this area. The social implications are interesting, but that innate curiosity of exploring something really uncharted was, was also, I think, really important to, to all the founders. Well, we need that. I mean, that's definitely true. Not, and the existing tools aren't going to solve all our problems. Um, and there's going to be things we're going to want to do that haven't been invented yet. Uh, which is why I still have a job um, <laughs> investing in in these new areas. Um, but well, this was great. Um, you know, I look forward to staying in touch and and learning more how things go in the future. And um, I mean, I can only wish you the best of luck. I mean, when as you said, the more successful companies like yours are, the healthier I can stay as I'm getting older. Yeah, I know. That's uh, I would say one of our. One of the main things that uh, we encounter when we I tell people about what we do, especially our work in Alzheimer's, is exactly that. They're like, oh, solve it quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, it was great to talk to you. And uh, I look forward, as I said, to staying in touch. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. We've made almost 50 episodes of Moneyball Medicine, and you can find all of them at glorickian.com forward slash podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at hglorickian. If you like the show, please do us a favor and leave us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, and we'll be back soon with our next interview.